Welcome to the Art of Mathematics and the Mathematics of Art. I'm Carol Jacoby. Today we're going to be talking about art that was inspired or created by math. But let's start by reviewing the puzzle from last time. Okay, there are two trains 60 miles apart and they're heading toward each other, each going 30 miles per hour. A fly going at a steady rate, 60 miles per hour, flies back and forth between them until they all crash. How far does the fly travel? Now, your first thought might be to figure out how far the fly goes to the first train and then how far to the second train and everything's moving and you add all these up. Actually, that's the way John von Neumann did it when somebody presented this problem to him at a cocktail party. But he did it all in his head and he got the right answer. There's actually an easier way to do it. And that is the relative speed of the trains toward each other is 30 plus 30 miles per hour or 60 miles per hour. And they're 60 miles apart when they start, so they'll crash after one hour. And during that hour, the fly is flying 60 miles per hour. So it flies 60 miles. That's it. What we're going to be talking about today is the book, Fragments of Infinity, A Kaleidoscope of Math and Art by Ivars Peterson. Now, this is actually an art book written by a mathematician. Who would imagine there'd be such a thing? The author says in the preface, it provides glimpses of artists enthralled by the unlimited possibilities offered by mathematically guided explorations of space and time. Now, this is really remarkable to me because when I was an undergraduate at UCLA, the campus was divided into North Campus and South Campus, and there was very little interaction among them. North Campus was arts, South Campus was science, and people generally didn't travel between these. The North Campus was all hippies and bright colors and spontaneity and singing and dancing. And the South Campus was all nerds and pocket protectors and engineers and so on. Math department shared a building with the engineers, so I was decidedly South Campus. And I think I was the only math major who went across campus and actually took art classes. And when I got over there, people would say to me, you're what? You're a math major? Really? So I'm really intrigued to read about these people who are both mathematicians and artists. For example, Helaman Ferguson, he's a sculptor and he's a former math professor. And he's a, had a lifelong interest in both art and math and he's been going through back and forth between them and being involved in them at the same time. What he's trying to do is to give us a physical representation of theorems that anyone can see and touch. See, the problem with math is it's beautiful, but only to the select few who have the background to understand it. So, for example, he has a physical representation of a theorem of topology. And this theorem is really remarkable. It says that you can take, for example, a sphere that has two handles and transform it into a shape where the handles are linked. And you can do this continuously without any cutting or gluing. It's really a remarkable theorem. And he ha the way he's represented this is he has a circle of 26 two-handled shapes. And as you go around the circle, the handles link and unlink, and you go around and around, and you watch them link and unlink. And this gives us a, an experience that we get with mathematics. 
if you read a theorem and you go through the proof step by step and you say, okay, that makes sense, that makes sense, that makes sense, and you get to the conclusion and you say, really? That's amazing. I don't believe it. But you went step by step, that makes sense, that makes sense, that makes sense, and then you get something that blows your mind. So it's the same sort of thing. So now anybody who can see and wonder about it can have this experience of seeing, watching a transformation like that. He gives us a lot of other shapes, like a graceful Klein bottle that flows in and out of itself, turning inside out, other strange and mysterious shapes from topology. A lot of the artists use the Mobius strip. If you want to make a Mobius strip, you just take a strip of paper, give it a half twist, and glue the pieces of the ends together. Now, try to color it on just one side. You can't do it. So the Mobius strip is used to show things like unity, continuity. Some of the works have titles related to eternity, immortality, continuum. By the way, my wedding ring is the Mobius strip, and it has the symbology of the two shall be as one. These are shapes from topology, and topology is a really great source for artists because it's related to shapes and how they evolve from one to another. By the way, topology and geometry get all the love on the cover of the notices of the American Mathematical Society and not less visual subjects like algebra and logic that are at least as interesting. Anyway, another theme is the fourth dimension. We talked about that a while back. And it's used to represent transcendence, talking about going into higher dimensions that we can't get to, trying to visualize that. And we spent a lot of time talking about how do you visualize things in the fourth dimension. For example, Salvador Dali used the fourth dimension in one of his paintings, a crucifixion scene. And above the crucifixion was a floating hypercube. This is a four-dimensional representation of a cube. And this particular representation looks somewhat like a cross. So it represents transcendence. Another way artists think about higher dimensions is by looking at how the three-dimensional world looks from two dimensions. So you're seeing the shadows of another world. And when we see 3D shapes, we can think of them as shadows of the fourth dimension. Tony Robin does multidimensional complexity. He creates these domes of linked rods. And you view them from different angles, and they look completely different. As you see the shadow... As the sun moves across the sky during the day, you see completely different shapes. Repetition of shapes is another theme that we see in a lot of these works. If you take some simple origami shapes and put them together, or you have a computer plot, a lot of variations of a formula, you get some exquisite patterns that you don't think are there based on the, the little pieces. Now you take fractals, and that takes that to the extreme, where you zoom in on it and it looks exactly the same. It's a way of exploring and thinking about the infinitesimal, a way of, of experiencing the infinitesimal. So you take a simple process, and you repeat it over and over again. You can do this with a computer. And patterns appear, they disappear, they morph, and they may even reappear. So you get, as you play this through, you can get a dynamic work of art. 
uh, with a computer graphics program and just repetition of simple instructions, building all sorts of complexity that you wouldn't think was there based on the simple instructions. And there's another type of art that's interesting because it doesn't repeat. And that's something called Penrose tiles. If you think of normal tile patterns, they'll repeat. Even the things done by uh, M.C. Escher with the little fish or whatever they are, it's a repeating pattern, the way these tiles fit together into a pattern. The Penrose tiles are intriguing because you do not get this same repeating pattern. And so this is interesting both to artists and mathematicians. And their three-dimensional analogs speak to things like crystals and are used in architecture. I'm interested, I would have been interested in what Escher could have done with this if he had known about this at the time. This was only discovered recently. The analogy here is the decimal expansion of, say, fractional numbers like 1 over 11 is 0 0.09090909. .09 .09 .09 .09. It keeps repeating like that forever in the same pattern. And you compare that with the decimal expansion of irrationals like pi, 3.14159, blah, blah, blah. In fact, one of the works is based on the seeming randomness of pi's digits. So there's interest here in both things that repeat and things that don't repeat. Some other mathematical considerations that created artwork or inspired artwork are minimal surfaces and the hyperbolic plane, which is really important in non-Euclidean geometry, and artists have used that to represent infinity. So in many cases, math inspires art. One question is, does art help create math? And there are examples in the book of works of art whose creation actually initiated some mathematical questions, like computer-generated imagery, and, and these patterns come out. Where'd that come from? What is behind these patterns that don't seem to be there in the original formulas? Is there interesting math in origami? Yeah, in fact, even in origami. Now, this book was written in 2001, so I imagine there's been a whole lot of mathematical art created since then. In fact, there's a technology that I'm sure has made major changes to mathematical art, and that is 3D printing. Now you can make these intricate sculptures. You can make elaborate computer-generated images, but now you can make them in three dimensions. And you can buy these things. You can buy some tiny, elaborate pieces. You can hold mathematical complexity in your hand. So check out something called Shapeways. It's a marketplace for 3D printed objects. And search on mathematical art. That's where I found some things that I bought. Now, I can't afford any of the artworks in this book. And they're monumental for the most part. So I have no place to put them. But I can buy little pieces. I got one called Mobius Nautilus, and it's a Mobius strip made up of 36 delicate interlocking Mobius strips. It's really beautiful. And I also got a, a tiny hyperdodecahedron, and it's a 3D representation of one of the six regular convex 4D polytopes. 
It's called 120 cell. So it's made up of nested polyhedra, and it's so complex, you can hardly see the one on the very inside. And each one of these costs less than $40. It's really amazing. So you can buy four-dimensional objects that are as they're represented in three dimensions. You can get some simpler polytopes. You can get a Klein bottle. You can get all sorts of different kinds of tesseracts. In fact, if you can think of it, pretty much you can program a 3D printer to make it, at least in theory. Mathematical thoughts you can display on a shelf. Okay, how about a puzzle? This puzzle is from Car Talk. I really enjoyed that show when it was on, these two crazy guys, crazy smart guys, talking about cars. I have no interest in cars or car repairs, but I just enjoyed listening to them. And they had some really good puzzles. The puzzle archive is still going. The show isn't, but the puzzle archive is still there, and I picked one for you that goes back to 1996. Potatoes are 99% water. You have 100 pounds of potatoes. You let them sit out on the porch to dry until they're only 98% water. What do they weigh then? So let me repeat it. Potatoes are 99% water. You have 100 pounds of potatoes. They dry until they're 98% water. What do they weigh then? We'll have the answer in, when we come back in two weeks. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a puzzle or something else that you'd like to share on the air, Leave a voice message at anchor.fm slash theartofmathematics with hyphens or email me at cjacoby at jacobyconsulting.com. Thanks for listening.